Good evening and a good Chodesh to all. Very blessed new month to everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, tonight, uh, before we begin the class, just a few dedications on the shear and on the CD. Um, the uh, shear this, this week was so graciously sponsored by uh, Terry Levin. And this is in honor of uh, three yard sites in the month of Adar. Um, Yisrael ben Shmuel Yecheskel Halevi and her aunt Lynn Bas Avram and they are their yard sites are the first of Adar one of us is tonight and the third of Adar and also have a grandmother whose yard site is going to be towards the end of the month of Adar Fega Bas Shmuel may they all have a tremendous aliyah to the greatest of heights may they channel lots of brachas down to you and uh, for all that you need and all that you want, much, much blessings, abundance, and everything. And uh, should just, just see big, big miracles in, in all aspects of your life. And this should be carry their souls to really, really blissful places and channel lots of good bracha to you. Um, another dedication tonight was by uh, Mrs. Cindy Abrams. And this is Lazecha Nishma's, her father. Zusul ben Chayim Halevi, who is the fourth, passed away on the fourth of Adar. May her neshama have, may his neshama have a spectacular aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she channel lots of brachas, may he channel lots of brachas down to you and to your family with only for abundance, bracha mazel, and only simcha and only, only good things. Thanks so much for that uh, dedication. Uh, we had one more dedication came in just moments before the shear. Um, I will leave that for a moment. There is a CD. Uh, the CD this week was sponsored uh, by our dear friend Shimon Leance, uh, by Shimon and Shandel Leance. This is in honor of um, Shimon Steve's father, uh, whose um, who's, uh, yard site is going to be the third of Ador, Yaakov Ben Beryl. May this be a big schus to his neshama, to carry him higher, help that his neshama soar to the greatest of heights, channel lots of brachas to you and to your family for only abundance of blessings and everything. Much, much simcha, mazel, and parnasah barachav, and only good. Another dedication this week was by Marty Fishman, and this is in honor of his uh, mother's yard site, which is today, Malkaleya Bas Ephraim Zalman. May her neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. And much, much brachas to you and the Rafua Shalema and good, good, complete health and only, only blessings uh, for the Mishpacha, the Nachas from the children and from the grandchildren. Now, last but not least, there was a dedication both on the Shir and on the CD by two individuals, but for the same dedication. Uh, very, very sadly, our community lost a giant of a giant, a giant of a man. Today, Rabbi Rabbi Gordon from the valley, Rabbi Yeshua bin Yamin Gordon, the head Chabad Shliach in the valley, who's been there for around 30 years or maybe longer, uh, who has made such a huge, huge impact on the Los Angeles community. And today, on Erev Shchodesh Adar, he had passed away. And um, his name is Yeshua bin Yamin bin Arav, Harav Achasid of Yeshua bin Yamin, Ben Arav Shalom Deizber Gordon, 
uh, may this uh, be a big schus for his neshama. And as I'm thinking about this passing today, what occurred to me was that it's Erev Rosh Ador. And we know that on Erev Rosh the moon, the moon disappears completely in the sky, uh, only as a preparation for a rebirth, for the moon to come back so much more powerful than it was before. As it says in the Haftorah that we read when Rosh comes out on a Sunday, it says, that Yonason says to David, you will be remembered because your seat will be vacant. It was the very absence of King David, of David HaMelech, brought to such sharp, vivid um, awareness of his, of his presence, of who he is. Um, when, just to imagine, California, Los Angeles, without Rabbi Gordon, this is a huge vacancy. It created such an emptiness, a, a, a tremendous emptiness. And um, so, you know, we're not giving any explanations, but if um, we're holding now so close to the coming of Mashiach, so we are hoping that if there had to be a vacancy before the Adars come in, the time of Simcha comes in, and there was a clearing, and now the joy can come in with the coming of Mashiach, uh, the emptiness, because you know, if you begin to think about he's here for working in this community for so many decades, two individuals, a husband and a wife, inspired, go to a place where there is minimal, minimal Yiddishkeit, and just selflessly devote themselves to connecting Jews to Torah, to mitzvahs, and you take a look three, four decades later, how, who, can, who can estimate? Who can estimate the effects of, of one individual in this, in this inspiring endeavor? Because now, how many Chabad institutions are there all over the valley, in all the cities? So many, how many Yidin put on tefillin? Who can count? How many Jews, how many women lit Shabbos candles? How many words of Torah, besides that Rabbi Gordon was giving for the last couple of years, his classes were listened to by thousands. Uh, he gave every day a class on Chumash and on Tanya and on Rambam. Listened to by, it, it's, it's, it's just, the, the merit is unbelievable. So as the, the vacancy is so great, and it happens on Erev Rosh Chodesh, Ador, Tavshin Ayin Vav, as we're expecting and so waiting for Mashiach. So the Nachama should be for the family, my dear friend Yossi Gordon, and my students, uh, Chaya and Dina Gordon, um, I want to wish that the family should be comforted amongst all the, those that are the, the mourners of Tzion and Yerushalayim. And um, the, the separation should only be mamish, just a, a split second, and not a second in God's mind, but a second as we experience it down here, as it says, Berega Kotna Zavtich, for only a slight little moment I've lived, go of you. And with great rachamim, um, with great compassion, I will gather you together. He should be back over here, triumphantly laughing and smiling and bringing us towards with all the yidden that he, is, that he has touched and, and inspired, all these Jews marching towards the ultimate geula, the coming of Mashiach. So the shir was dedicated by the Mansuri family for his chus, and by the Frankel family, Rabbi Simcha and Cyril Frankel um, also had dedicated the shir, and the CD was 
um, dedicated by Avi Hecht and his family. Uh, again, this is an on, this is Lizchus Yeshua ben Yamin ben Rav Shalom de Ber, and there shouldn't be any more pain and 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 sorrows in the world because we've had more than we can handle. Um, we are now gonna now from the pain of this we have to go into the month of Ador. Ador is a month of joy, and this year we have a great opportunity, but also a very great challenge. Being that the month of Adar this year is two, two Adars, and as, as mentioned by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, something very special, that this opens up for us a very great opportunity because we get 60 days of Adar. And there is a rule, a halachic rule in Torah, that when there is something that is uh, any, any entity, when it is, gets mixed with another substance, if that substance overwhelms it 60 times, then that, sub, that other substance gets nullified as if it doesn't exist. It's a law in, it's a law in kashras, you know, a non-kosher falls into something else. We always me, usually it's measured by 60, 60 times as much, and then it's as considered as if that, that whatever substance is, doesn't exist. So therefore he says that if there's any negativity in the world, any sadness, any heartbrokenness in the world, any pain that's in the world, any depression that's in the world, um, we can get rid of it because this year we have 60 days of simcha. And if we ratchet up the joy and truly all make an effort, you see, joy is not something that you just, I'm happy. It takes an effort. And, and if we all make a sincere effort not to allow chas v'shalom things to get us down, but to find the joy and simcha, to be besimcha during the month of Adar, beginning right now, as we're starting the month of Adar right now, the 60-day countdown starts now. Once and for all, we ought to nullify all negativity and all pain and all suffering with the great joy that we have to dig in and find deep in our souls. And we can cancel all darkness in the great powerful light of simcha and of joy. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the world. We owe it to Hashem. It's up to us to be able to do this. We have to bring out the simcha. But that is a challenge. That really is a challenge. Everybody has difficulties in their life. Uh, life presents to each and every one of us its challenges. Uh, and there's no one that is free of these particular hardships. And sometimes these hardships can become so overwhelming that it mamish drains the energy. And, and, and it becomes hard, very hard. Sometimes it becomes a formidable challenge. We feel it's impossible to be joyous and to be happy. We were just talking about a tragedy, something so sorrowful and painful. So how do we overcome that? We have to do that. There's no choice because we need to bring in the joy, we need to bring in the simcha because sadness and depression will not lead us out of exile. It will be simcha. But how do we do it when we have such a stubborn exile that doesn't want to let go? Mashiach could have and should have been here such a long time ago. But in some way, this like parasite of an exile is holding on to, to, to us and to the world and it's not letting go. It's sunk its long nails and teeth into us. It's so hard to find simcha when we're up against this challenge. Challenges that everybody has can be with problems in the family, children, a lack of peace, parnasa challenges, and then spiritual hardships. We're living in a world full of temptation. We all fall from time to time. We succumb to this and to that. We are very, very deeply connected to Hashem, 
we so badly and so strongly want to be good Jews, it's difficult and it's hard when we slip and we fall, and then at the same time to be able to be besimcha. So whether the challenge is from the physical problems, whether the challenge is from spiritual dilemmas, it is extremely challenging. Where do we find the simcha? How do we get happy in the month of Adar? There must be an answer. And obviously, any kind of excuse for joy will always be able to be argued against. That Well, in my situation where things are so hard, and it's not only that I have a difficulty in one thing, I have X, Y, and Z. I have all these problems together. I'm paralyzed. I can't find the joy. So there must be a liberating thought. There must be a way in which we could discover the joy. Bashkacha um, Pratis, again, do I have the answer? No, but I think I do. Um, not because I have the answer, because when I sat down yesterday to learn Parshas Truma, this speaks Parshas Truma, we know that the Abishter always provides the answers. And um, the, the merit of the community, because people, people listen to the sheer and want inspiration. So the merit of the community has led me to a, to a gem of a gem. It's such a simple idea, yet it's so profound. It's so rich. And it's all there in the first Pasuk, in this week's Parsha. Because Parsha's Truma always comes out the week of the month of Adar. That means that the source of happiness has to come from Parsha's Truma. So what is the joy that we discover in Parsha's Truma? So Hashem led me to a gem. I sat down here in the shul yesterday, opened up a book that I became very attached to this year. Because when I was in New York, I walked into the bookstore and my eyes fell upon a safer that I was searching for for years and, I, and it was out of print. And then I picked up this great book called Biure HaZohar, Explanations on the Zohar, uh, which is a compilation of teachings from Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, known as the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, in which he gave discourses to explain passages, difficult passages of the Zohar. Now these were not ordinary discourses. These were the discourses he gave only to his children. There was a selected few, I mean, I think only his sons were allowed to hear these discourses. Yet his son recorded it, and then it was printed. And the beautiful thing is, 250 years later, now it has been given to the Jewish people to study. So when I picked up the book, most of the discourses are very complex, they're very abstract, they're dealing with, you know, their passages and explanations on the Zohar, very Kabbalistic. But I read a little, uh, one of these, and one of the, this discourse on Pasha's Truma, it's a long discourse, but, and it gets complicated. But the first page has such light and such, such, such inspiration. And I think it answers the question, where do we find the joy in the most difficult of, of, of circumstances? A argument, a, a, a cause of simcha that cannot be argued against. One can't refute this argument. This is the ultimate answer for joy, for simcha. Because no matter which situation is, this, this that we learn over here gives us simcha, if we are willing to think about it for a few moments. So what I'm going to do is today is I'm going to read the Zohar, what it says, and the explanation that he gives, and its connection, of course, to Parshas Truma. So the, on the opening verse of Parshas Truma, it says, Vaydabir Hashem al Moshe, Hashem spoke to Moshe, Lamar saying, Dabra b'nei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, take for me, Truma, 
a that Hashem is we're going to build it. We're going to build a mishkan. We're going to build a home for God. And Hashem says, take speak to the Jewish people. They should build. They should take from me a donation, truma, separation. May is kolish from any person. by whose heart will donate. So the Zohar quotes like this: Reb Chia Pasach. Reb Chia opens up his explanation with this verse. In other words, connecting to the pasuk in Parshas Truma, where it talks about everybody joining together to for this campaign to build a Beis Hamikdash, to build a home for God. He opens up with the verse: Ki Yaakov Bachar Loika, because Yaakov God has chosen. There's a pasuk we say it every day in Yehi that Yaakov Hashem has chosen the Jewish people. Yisrael is Gulasai. Yisrael, the Jewish people, have been chosen to be Hashem's cherished treasure. And here's the Zohar says like this, How precious are the Jewish people. How beloved are the Jewish people. In front of God. How much love, how deep is the love of the Jewish people in front of Hashem. The Isrihi Buhu. Because he desired them. Again, look how precious they are. He desired them. Or he desires them. Uboya, and he wants Li'izdapkabuhu to connect to them. God is seeking to connect to them. To who? To the Jewish people. Not only that, Uliiskashra Imohoin. And to bond with them. He desires them. He wants to connect to them and bond with them. And he makes with them, together with them, a unification in this world. The Chsivet says in the Pasuk, Who is like the Jewish people? One nation on, on earth. And they... Isruhu Bey, they desire him. He desires them, they desire him. Viskashre Bey, and they bond with him. This is what the Pasik says. That Yaakov, Hashem has chosen Yaakov. And it says, that a portion, that God's lot, Hashem's portion, are his people. Viyohav Lashar Amin Shultanin. Ravrivin, Memanen Alaihu. Hashem has given to all the other nations ministering angels, what it's referring to, ministering powers, governing powers that rule over them and conduct the affairs of all the nations. That's all the other nations. Vuhu Yisrael. But God took to his own portion the Jewish people. So to the nations Hashem appointed all the ministering angels to be in charge over them, but to the Jewish people his favorite that he kept to himself. He took them for himself. That's the Zohar. So we need to understand over here now, simply, the Zohar is talking about the depth of the union between Hashem and the Jewish people. How precious Jews are in front of God to Hashem. The Zohar somehow makes this comment as the opening verse in Zohar for Parshas Truma. So there must be a connection between this passage about the preciousness of Israel, the preciousness of the Jewish people in God's eyes, to the theme, to what Parshas Truma is talking about. So we need to understand what's the connection. 
I mean, obviously, just thinking on a simple level, truma is the ultimate love, shows the ultimate love. Because God says, make me a home, I want to live amongst you. To believe that God, who is the creator of everything, who has everything, who is infinite and boundless, inconceivable, unknowable, unreachable, untouchable, who all creatures and all beings throughout all of the worlds, all the worlds, are longing and longing and longing to reach, to touch even just a tiny little crumb of God's infinite splendor and beauty. And that infinite, endless, boundless being desires to come and move into a little home that we make so that he can be with us. Obviously, that's the ultimate expression of love. Inconceivable. It's not to be understood. The love that comes out of, of, of Parshas Truma, of the depth of that relationship. It's really, really, really unbelievable. But why the particular connection to the first Pasuk of Parshas Truma? That's the general question. What is the Zohar trying to say with this Pasuk? And now let's just go through a little bit the words because you realize the words that are coming out of Rabbi Shimon by Yochai, the master, the teacher, the ultimate, the, 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 the source of light, Zohar means light, the source of the brilliant light, of the inner esoteric element of the Torah, the master Kabbalist and teacher of, 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 all, of all the esoteric elements of the Torah, of the mysteries of the Torah. Every word of his is flames of fire, and every word of his is polished diamonds. So it's not just, he's not just trying to be poetic. So what, are, what, what, what is the Zohar saying? So if we look detailed and more specifically, we see as follows. First it's describing the great love that God has to the Jewish people, and it mentions three things. Israhu, he, he desired them. Right? Israhu, Isra'i, Bahu, he desired them. And Ubayali is Dapka, and he wants to cleave to them. He wants to connect to them. Bahu and them. And he wants to bond with them. So we're talking about three things. He desires them, he wants to connect to them, and he wants to bond with them. What do these three things mean? Okay, obviously there is, each, there is a great profound meaning in each one of these expressions. Whether Rav Shimon Bayachai is speaking about this relationship. And then what does he add when he says, and Hashem wants to make a unity with them in the world. Hashem wants to make, He makes a unity with them in the world. Then, when He speaks about our love to God, when He speaks about our love to Him, He mentions also the Jewish people in response, in reciprocation. They desire Him, and they bond with Him. But take note, He leaves out, and they want to connect to Him. So he only mentions two things. They desire and they bond. Isrehu and Iskashru. But he doesn't say Isdabik, Dibuk, which means cleaving or bonding. I'm sorry, um, attaching. He doesn't speak about attachment. So we need to understand why that is. Another interesting idea, a question, just a little nuance, because we'll see that there's such depth over here. Going back to the love that God has to the Jewish people, he mentions when it comes to Dveikus, that Hashem wants to connect to us, He says, Lizdapka bahu. Lizdapka bahu. 
to cleave in Him, meaning Hashem wants to cleave in Yisrael, to the Jewish people. He wants to connect Behu. When it comes to bonding, He says, to bond Imoin with them, as opposed to to them, with them. Is there a difference in the reason why the Zohar chooses to change the words from to them to with them? But as we're going to see, there is great depth to this. And the idea is as follows. The first thing the Zohar is saying is that Hashem is Isrubahu. He desires us. Hashem desires us. What does it mean He desires us? You know, the sages tell us that there were a few things that precede the world. There is a world, and the world is precious to God. God has meaning and interest in every creature, and in every being, compassion on every creature. There's a relationship of Hashem to every being and every creature, because it's all part of Hashem's handiwork, it's all part of His masterful creation. But the sages tell us that there were a few things that preceded the world. And of them there are seven things. Of the seven, there are two most precious. And that is the Torah and the Jewish people. And then the Medrash asks the question in Tana de Leo, the Jewish people and the Torah come before the world. They, they were in God's thoughts before He created the world. But what is first between the two? Between Torah and Israel, what is really, really first? So Elio Anavi says, the world, and we spoke about this one time, the world thinks that the Torah comes first in God's mind. But I say, Elio Anavi says, but I say, that the Jewish people are kaidem l'chol davar. They come before everything. They're before every, every, everything. Their thought about them precedes everything. So we can understand this all in time. There is a world. God at a certain point wants a world. Before that, He wants the Torah. And even before that, He thinks Israel, the Jewish people, are in His mind. So we can speak in time. But it's not really a time. When we're saying before, we mean deeper. Deeper. There is a certain relationship that God has with the world, but it's on the external level of Hashem's interest and Hashem's desire. There is a deeper place in where Hashem cares about the Torah. The Torah is one with Him. But there is even a deeper, more essential element, and that is where the Jewish people are rooted in God. And there isn't any deeper than Hashem, and when we say, than the Jewish people, and when we say the Jewish people, it means me and you. It means all of them. We're not talking about the Jewish people. This is important to recognize that we're talking about each and every one of us as being in the inner, inner, innermost of Hashem's heart, of heart of hearts. When we say desire, He explains an amazing thing. What does that mean? Desire. Desire usually means when you want something, but you don't have an explanation of why you want it. That's desire. Usually all of our attachments and wants and connections that we make to anything is usually because there is something it gives us. There is an explanation to it. There's some, we recognize, we appreciate the qualities, the value of any given entity and as a result of that, we want it. That's external because it's coming from the more external element of us and that's our brain, that's our understanding, that's our rational and reason. That's the outer part of the human being. A desire like that, that we want because of a reason, is usually called emotion. We don't call it ratzon. It's an emotion. Emotions are product of the intellect. The intellect appreciates something, and then we get a love towards somebody or something because of emotion, because of the intellect, because of the reason. Ratzon means really drive. 
The drive in a human being, you can't explain why you're driven. You're, dri- you're driven because you're driven. There is a drive. It's a, ru- it's a will. It's a desire. It's beyond all logic and explanation. As we all know, within ourselves, we have certain drives that we can't explain. Why? It just is. This is who I am. I don't know why. But he says an amazing thing. Within drive, within ratzon, within will, there's two levels of will that are beyond reason. One of them is beyond logical explanation that I can articulate and verbalize, but there is still a secret underlying reason for the desire. That's called a tam komus, a concealed reason. In other words, it's too deep for me to explain why, but there is a reason why. There's something that this entity or this being or this element is giving me. I can't, I don't know. Maybe I need to go to a therapist to help me dig into my subconscious to figure out why I have this need, why I have this craving, why I have this want. I don't know. But, but, But there is a reason. He says those kinds of desires, he gives an example how we see that by God. There was once a terrible moment in Jewish history when the ten martyrs were being killed. And Rabbi Akiva, the great tzaddik Rabbi Akiva, who was being combed, his flesh was being combed with metal combs by the brutal Romans. And the malachim, all these, all, all the, all these, all the celestial beings above were weeping because they couldn't understand. This was so against everything. You have a tzaddik of tzaddikim, a person who's, who Moshe Rabbeinu said the Torah should have given, be given through him. And he is being tortured to death with the worst. And they cried out to God. They said, this world makes no sense. It's horrible. What are you doing? And God calls out, yells. And he says, silence. This has arose in my thought. And if you complain and you ask questions, I'm going to put the world back to nothingness. So what does that mean? Did God have an explanation? Was it just too much to explain? Was it too difficult for Hashem to explain why this is happening, this madness? No, as He explains it over here, there is, there is no articulatable reason. It's not something that is logic or rational, but, but there, is, there is some explanation but can't be verbalized. Even God can't verbalize it. Whatever that means, I don't understand. Because I can't even know what we can say about God can't. I don't know. But this is the idea. It's will, it's, it's, a hidden, it's a hidden reason that is not explainable. Logic cannot hold it. But there's still a reason. That's called, in this Kabbalistic term, he calls it Chachma Shebekeser. Which means, it's the will, it's Chachma, it's logic. Chachma means reason. But it's reason as it is embedded in desire. It's reason as it is part of the keser. It's part of the super-rational. But in the super-rational, there is some kind of a reason, an inexplainable reason. But then there is another kind of a desire. And that is a desire that's called keser shebekeser. The crown of the crown. It's not just desire, it's raiva the kol raivin. It's the will, it's the will of all wills. It's a pure will that doesn't have anything else mixed into it but for the fact that I want. And there's no reason whatsoever. It just is, this is what I desire. 
And each and every one of us arose in that desire. That Hashem says, I desire you. And I have no explanation why. No hidden explanation. I just desire you. You know how awesome that is? Anything that has a reason is disposable. Because anything that you want because of a reason, if for whatever reason you get what you need through another way, I don't need it anymore. How many times do we take old furniture and old stuff and we wanted it so much when we bought it and it's out the, in the garbage. Why? Because I found some other way of having this comfort. I got a new couch, I threw out the old one. Whatever it is, people go in and out of relationships. Because whenever I need it to receive in this relationship, I have it from some other way and I don't need it anymore. Anything that has an explanation, has a utility, is serving a purpose for something could be done without it. But then there is something that you don't have a reason. It's just who you are. You want because you want. There is nothing to limit that desire. That's boundless. That's as deep as you are. And that's the depth of, the, of what the Zohar means when it says, Isri Yibuhu. Hashem desired them. Every single one is desired with an inexplainable. God can't explain it. There is no reason. He just desires. All of us. Go understand why. Why, why would a God who, has, who is not lacking anything want... There's no explanation. It's not a need. He just desires. With all of his desire, he desires. With every ounce, so to speak, of his infinite and boundless desire, he desires us. Then what, but then, how did Hashem desire us? He desired us... To create us into this world. Out of that desire came a world and came a Torah. Because the desire was that He would create us. Create our, so to speak, emanate our souls into creation. And create a world to serve kind of as the, the, the backdrop. To serve as the, the construct in which He's going to play out His desire of being in a relationship with us. And the guidelines of that relationship, how is he going to manifest that relationship? Through the Torah. Through the Torah and a mitzvah observance, he's going to actualize that desire. So that's the next thing the Zohar says. After we've established that the desire that God has for the Jewish people is a pure desire, of pure, pure desire, and therefore doesn't have any limitations, now, how is this materialized into creation and into existence? So the Zohar says, okay, so now how will God manifest that, that, that bond in two ways? To connect to us. And to bond with us. What does it mean to connect and to bond? These are the two ways in which we actually make, forge a bond with Hashem. He desires to be in a relationship. But how do we actualize that relationship? Well, in Torah and in mitzvahs. When we're doing a mitzvah, that's called connection. Every mitzvah makes a connection. The difference between connecting and bonding is the difference between bringing two things together until they touch. That's called dibuk. Two things are touching each other. They're connected. Maybe you will even put glue on them so that the two things bond and they stay connected. But they're attached to each other, but still each one is, is in its own space. Item A, item B are touching each other. They're 
connecting to each other, but yet the space of item A is, is item A. The space of B is B. They're not in each other's space. When you bond or when you're tying a knot, iskashra means to bond and to knot. When you're tying a knot, then the rope and the thread, each one is pervading into the space of the other. They're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not just touching. They're entering into each other's space, space until they're, 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 they're interwoven, interconnected, and they're totally one. That's the difference between the observance of a mitzvah and when we study Torah. When we're doing a mitzvah, when we're doing a mitzvah we're becoming attached to God because the godly light of the mitzvah envelops us, it encompasses us, it surrounds us. We're enveloped with Hashem's light. A mitzvah is Hashem hugging us. That's just the way it is. Whether we, with our limited sensitivity, with our clogged sensors, as a result of 2,000 years of exile, don't feel any of this. And think a mitzvah is just an act, a good deed. A mitzvah is God hugging us. The Pasuk says, His right hand embraces me. So when you give tzedakah, you are just hugged by God. When you lit Shabbos candles, at the time you're doing the mitzvah, you're being hugged by infinite light. And as going back earlier, that which the angels in heaven would dream of all their, all their life, to experience even one tiny little bit, a fraction of a fraction of that intimacy, of that love, an angel can't get a hug by God. If he gets hugged by God, kaputo, gone, over, it's burnt, it's destroyed. Yet we, anytime you want, anytime I want, anytime all of us, we can be hugged by Hashem, any mitzvah. Anytime you do a mitzvah, Hashem's light is enveloping and wrapping itself around, around your soul. The light is not being internalized because we can't understand it, we can't absorb it, we don't understand the reason of the mitzvah. It's above us, it's hovering around us, it's touching us. It's a dibuk, called meaning a cleaving from the outside. Then we study Torah. And Torah opens up a whole different dimension. Because when you're learning Torah, the relationship gets much deeper. It's not only Hashem hugging us, giving us an embrace. But when we learn Torah, Hashem is actually entering into our space. And our space becomes filled with His light. Because when you're learning something, what does that mean? You're, conce- you're understanding a godly idea, which is the, the, the Torah concept is, is Hashem's light. And when that idea lowers itself down, because obviously the Torah in its pristine, godly state would be utterly unknowable and unconceivable even by any super angel think tank up there in heaven. It couldn't couldn't conceive a, a, a Torah concept. Yet Hashem has, with His infinite love, lowered down that, that, that light and brought it down to a conceivable, understandable state. When you understand it, then God's light is actually entering into your brain and into your soul. And now there is a complete emergence of the Yid and Hashem 
in the deepest way possible. This is called the knot. He's knotting himself to us. Because here is where we're, 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 we're becoming one. We're being enveloped by God, and at the same time, we're enveloping His light. In Torah, the union is taking place on both levels. From inside and from outside. We're within Hashem's light. So it's a knot, as the two become knotted, connected in the deepest way. That's the difference in which he says the two things in the Zohar. Hashem wants to cleave to them. And Hashem wants to be knotted with them, which really means when we're learning Torah, if a mitzvah is a hug, Torah is a divine kiss. Because when you're learning Torah, His breath, the words of the Torah are God's words, emanating from God's mouth. When you're learning Torah, it says when a person learns, Hashem is learning right, connecto, opposite you. So on the deeper meaning it means, on the deepest meaning it means that the two are in locked mouth to mouth where Hashem's breath is entering into you. And the two are merging in the, such a deep way. Torah is a, a mitzvah, is an embrace. And Torah is an, is a, is a, is an ashikin, it's a kiss between, the Jewish, between Hashem and the Jewish people. That's the purpose of all of creation. It's all God wanted. It's all God wanted. He wanted to hug and to kiss. Who? Any one of us. Every single one of us. This love, this joining, this is, this, this is at the root of everything. This union. And that's why he says, interesting, the word lehizdapku, the Zohar uses the word bahu, in them. Lehizkashro, when he says bonding, he says imahem, with them. Because the difference between Dibuk is, he's connecting to us, but he's not inside of us. But in Torah, it becomes imahem with them. Because a knot, the two intertwine one with each other. And that's the knot of Torah. Then, since God has that love to us, and that desire to us, even though we are kind of oblivious to all of this, kind of, Unaware, we're numb to being able to feel this. Yet, the Zohar says. But the truth is that the inon they, which means the Jewish people, is who desire him. That means that open up the heart of any Jew, deep, dig deep enough, you might not see it on the outside. It might be totally, completely indifferent, cold. Gets annoyed if you ask or want to do with him anything Jewish. Runs away, rejects, screams, shouts, leave me alone. I'm an atheist, I'm a non-believer. It's all babamises. It's all, it's, it's all not true. And every single Jew desires God. And when we say desire, we mean the same desire. Since we are emanating from God's desire, where God desires us for no reason at all, our desire for Hashem is also for no reason at all. Which means if we look at our motivation and, insp- and, and what drives us in our observance, in our Yiddishkeit, we can of course detect various different levels. We have all kinds of reasons of why we inspire ourselves. What gets us to do a mitzvah? What gets us to daven? What gets us to learn? And the motivation can be very, very shallow. Sometimes a person's entire observance of, of mitzvahs is motivated by the idea that if I'm going to keep mitzvahs, I'm going to have a good life. I mean, I have a moon I have. We spoke about last week about faith. We all have a natural faith that God runs the world. If I want to be on God's good side, I better do His mitzvah. So the more mitzvahs I will do, the more success I will have. 
Hopefully I'll be healthy, my family will be healthy, my children will be healthy. Hopefully by doing mitzvahs I'm going to have parnasa and the like. People always have these calculus. We're all We all have these ulterior motives of seeking. That's true. Sometimes a little bit more deeper than that, we understand that, okay, it's not, you know, mitzvahs are not just to live a good physical material life. Hopefully we can be thinking of, a, some people think about olam haba, the world to come, the reward of the world to come, or more spiritual delight. But that too is what? I'm looking for something, to gain something from the mitzvah. And then it can be even, even deeper than that. I, 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 I'm looking for some kind of fulfillment. I can't live empty life. I need fulfillment in my life. So God gives me fulfillment. All these calculations we all experience one way or another, but this is all the external workings. This is because we're not in touch with our deepest self. This is because our nisham is operating through a filter of our mind and things are being filtered. So, so the true motivation that inspires us to do anything in Yiddishkeit, to, to live a life as a Jew, the true inner deepest motivation is just because. It's just because this is the deepest desire. We want God because we cannot not want Him. It's just who we are. And we want Hashem with a boundless, it's at the root of all desire. More, this is our strongest, deepest, truest desire is to cleave, to connect to God for no reason at all. Not because of any gain. Of course, we're not connecting consciously to that. So as that desire stirs, is emerging from the very super, super conscious, deepest levels, as it's coming outward, it gets coded and plated and... and, and, and um, uh, colored, so to speak, by all the various different reasons that we can that, that are conjured up on our more external levels of being, where we conjure up reasons why we want to be a Jew. But that's not the true reason. That's not the real motivation. The true desire and drive in a Jew is simply Israhu Bahu. We desire God. God desires us for no reason at all. We desire Him with a boundless, infinite desire for no reason at all. That's at the heart of every Jew. Then, say my, say my God, He actualizes it. How is it being actualized? Oh, so just like Hashem gives us Torah and mitzvahs, and through Torah and mitzvahs, Hashem bonds with us. Through Torah, He envelops us. I'm sorry, in mitzvahs, He hugs us. And in Torah, He kisses us. There is a de- there's an internal bond. So the same is from Jew to Hashem. We actualize this bond and this connection to Hashem. From us, it's through bonding to Hashem, the iskashras, the bond in which we kiss God. God kisses us when we learn Torah. Our kiss to God is in prayer. And here is a fabulous idea. In which he did, in where this super rational desire comes out and it reaches its highest moment of a kiss between us and Hashem. So he explains that this takes place in prayer, but primarily the place in prayer. Now this is, he says, where does it happen is in davening. Davening is a, goes through various stages of prayer. And the, and the highest peak of prayer is when we say the Shema, after the Shema, sometimes we go through this very f- quickly and we don't realize where we're standing. When we say, right after, right after MS, Hashem Elokeichem MS, we go through a series of 15 words that begin with a vav. It's true and it's right and it's established. And 
go through 15 words with a vav. The deepest moment of davening is in those 15 vavim. We say in the Zemiris, Friday night, one of the Kabbalistic writings of the, of the Arizal, it's a, it's a song that the Arizal composed, in which it says, Bivavin tiskator. With the vavs, in the vavs, tiskator, that's where you connect, that's where you bond. These are the 15 vavs that we're saying. This idea is taken from the Eitz Chaim, from the Arizal, in which he describes that there is a, a hechal, there's a certain chamber called the chamber of ratzon, the, the chamber of desire. And the chamber of desire we access at this point in davening. And this is the moment of the kiss, the 15 vavim. And just to understand this a little better, he describes it as follows. Not over here, he makes reference to it to a different discourse. So I looked it up, and over there there's just a beautiful description about the progression of davening. Because, you know, to us, sadly, davening is sometimes a burden, sometimes just mumbling words until our jaws get tired. Sadly, we're in exile, so we're, not, we're unaware. We're unaware of where, where we're going during davening. But the davening really has four, four parts to it. The four parts of davening are, there is a part of davening that goes on Tul Baruch Sha'amar, okay, from the brachos that we say in the morning, karbanos, sacrifices, and then we get to Baruch Sha'amar. Then you have Baruch Sha'amar until Yishtabach, second phase of davening. Third phase of davening is after Baruch Hu. We speak about the angels, Yotzer Or, Baruch Shech, Light. And then we have the Shema, leading into the Shema. So the way he describes it is as follows. And then we get to Shemona Esri. And the 15, the 15 Vavim is the bridge between the Shema and Shemona Esri. So here's the progression. This is so, so magnificent. The first part of davening, when you're davening, when you're saying Yotzer, the, the, the brachos, the blessings, morning blessings, and the karbanos, it's not yet about cleaving to God. What we need to do is we have to, we have to, we need to um, shed the klipa. We have to undo the, 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 the blockages. Because we're living in a material, physical world, and we get so entrenched, we get so caught, in in the in the in all the physical pursuits, so we 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 completely disconnect with our neshama, with our soul, of who we really are. So there is a certain time in davening where you just have to remove. It's like the like you have to shed your skin, your outer klipa. The hide of the snake has to come off. And where do we do that during the blessings? And we make two blessings. You say, "You did not make me a, a slave." Shloyasani aved. You didn't make me a slave. Shaloyasani goi, you didn't make me a Gentile. What that really means is, I might have perceived myself in the same way like a Gentile, like someone who's a slave or something. So, two things, slave, Gentile, whatever. But I might have perceived myself, my identity has become so confused. But I'm realizing that that's not who I am. So we're removing these garments, removing the garments. And then we, we make one statement. We say, But we, the chosen ones, how fortunate we are that we're Jewish and we belong to you, Hashem, in a very special way. So that first part of the davening is the shedding of the external. It's the undoing of the clip. It's not yet even connection. When we get to Baruch She'amar and we say the, 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 the verses of song, that's from Baruch She'amar, until Yishtabach, 
That's when we're going into the courtyard of the palace. Now if you're going to assume, it's month of Adar already, we're already thinking about Purim. So if you read the Megillah, we see that there is, that describes Ahasuerus' palace. So you have the palace itself, and within the palace you have the throne room, Nochach, the words over there that Esther went all the way in, right opposite the chamber of the king. But then it describes that there is chatzar, there is a chatzar hapnimis, there's an inner courtyard, right in front of the palace, there's the, again, there is the king's room, there is the palace, and then outside of that there is an inner courtyard, and then there are gardens, chatzar ginas beisamelech, there are gardens, the courtyards of the gardens of the palace. See, and, and, and really the story of the Megillah, even though it's talking about a Persian empire, it's a reflection of what's happening in the spiritual world in God's palace. So as we go through davening, when we're, when we're saying karbonos, we're not even in the palace, we're not even in the palace's compound yet. We're still outside, we're just trying to clean up a little bit. When we begin davening, um, um, Baruch Sha'amar, we enter into the external garden which is called Chatzar Chitzona, the external garden, Bisan HaMelech, Ginas of the gardens of the king. That's why, what are we talking about over there? We're talk, spiritually, where are we going? We're entering into the spiritual worlds where you have the ministering angels that are in charge of all natural phenomena. So we say, for example, we say, Hallelujah, Hashem, praise God, Min HaShamayim, from the heavens. Praise God, Min Aretz from the earth. The stars, the, 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 we're talking about all the forces of nature. Now obviously, it's not, we're not just talking, we're saying praise God, the physical elements of nature, of the physical world, because they're, they don't, this is physical, they're not hearing us. When we're talking about praising Hashem, we're talking about what? The angels that are in charge over all natural phenomenon, but they are existing on the external level of the world. Because they're all part of the actual, they're the motor of creation. The motor of nature. So, we're entering into their zone. They acknowledge God. They recognize Hashem, that Hashem is the source of all blessings. They sing to God. On that level, heaven is singing, earth is singing, stars are singing. Not the physical stars, but the soul of the stars. Which are these malachim, these angels. But these are considered more external angels. Because they are the, the, the conveyor belts. They're the motors. They're the ones that are causing all of natural phenomena. They're, that's why they're just one step, if we might say, higher than our physical material world. So they're considered the beings of the outer courtyard. They don't have a deep appreciation of the king, but they acknowledge the king. They sing to the king. So we enter into that zone. We join in that dimension of creation to sing along with all these beings. Then we come to after the next part, by Baruch and suddenly our souls are elevated. Now I know when you're hearing this thing, well, who's davening like that? So here's the thing, whether, you're, whether we're conscious about it or we're not conscious about it, our soul is going through this journey. And the reason we have to learn about it is to know where our soul is going, but even more so because any moment Mashiach is going to come, and the fog that is blinding us, and that is numbing us, the numb, literally we got a, the gullus is a, you go to the dentist, and you get a shot, and it numbs your mouth, and you don't feel anything. But we all know the moment that numbing wears off, and suddenly you, you feel very much. The moment Gullus goes away, all our sensors are suddenly, we're going to be so sharply aware. So we have to know what we're going to experience, or else we might snap. We might go crazy. If we know what, that this is supposed to happen, 
so then we can at least handle it. So what is going to happen tomorrow when you daven? Hopefully Mashiach is going to be here. So be ready. Now what's going to happen is when after you say Baruchu, and you enter into Yoytzer Or, suddenly, whoa! You entered into an inner zone. You went from the external courtyard into the inner courtyard. Over here already you're sitting and standing together with the internal angels, not the external angels who motorize the world. These are much, much deeper beings. Deeper, deeper inner beings who perceive God's light. They have love. They have awe. They're really excited. And when your nisham is swept up, this is what it's supposed to be, our souls get swept up in the frenzy of these malachim as they're singing and they're, 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 they don't know what to do with themselves. Out of, out of yearning, desire, awe, fear, all these powerful um, um, opposite, various emotions. We enter into that inner place. This, this is very, very intense. But then it says we go into what's called when we get to the next blessing. And this is the blessing of Avas Olam. The blessing right before the Shema. Great love. Avas Olam Aftanu. Great love you have loved us. What is happening at this moment is the Nisham is now going from the inner, from the inner courtyard and entering into the chamber like the antechamber that's going into the palace. This is a place where angels don't go, even the highest of angels. This is only a place where neshamas are, only souls. And here is where souls are singing. And this the Arizal calls Hechal Ava, the Hechal of love. At this moment, the neshama is experiencing the deepest inner love to Hashem. Powerful love that only an ashama can feel because only an ashama has such intimacy with God. Angels are creatures, the shamas are divine. So, this is very powerful, especially when you get to Shema Yisrael. This is a preparation. Now, the chamber of love extends throughout the Avas Rabbah, Avas Olam, into the Shema. Finally, when you get to the Yatsev that's after the Shema. You've passed the Hechal of Ava, the chamber of love, and you're now entering into the chamber of desire. What's the difference? What we spoke about in the beginning of the class. The love of chamber of love is all coming from the mind, coming from the soul's perception and understanding of God's beauty and God's greatness. But when you enter into the chamber of desire, here is where the superconscious takes over. Here is where the gushing of desire, where the soul, pure naked love, pure essential desire that doesn't have any explanation. At this point, as he describes, the soul is standing right next to the entrance to the, to, to the actual room where the king is. And at this moment, she's experiencing a kiss through the 15 vavim. This is the, this is the, deep, this is the deepest connection. What happens by Shmona Esrei? By Shmona Esrei, you're beyond the kiss. Because by, a kiss means two entities are kissing. By Shmona Esrei, the neshama got swallowed up by God. And that's why by Vayatzev and Nachon, you, you're still there, you, you, you can talk, your davening is still loud. When you get to Shmona Esrei, you have no voice. Muted. Silence. There is no sound. What do we say? 
Hashem sfasai tiftach, Hashem opened my mouth. Because we're not talking anymore. It's like Eliyo Anavi describes, there is, there, is a, there is a wind, and afterwards there is a th- sound, powerful thunder, and afterwards there is fire, and afterwards there is a silent sound. This is total absorption. So this is davening. This is our kiss. Our moment of connection is before Shemona Esrei. Because once you're in Shemona Esrei, there is total, the soul is subsumed in God. But before that, we're in a kiss. This is what the Zohar is talking about. This, this reciprocal love. The love coming from it. But then he asked, remember we asked at the beginning, how come by our love it mentions only that we bond with God? But it doesn't mention that we connect to Him. It doesn't mention the Dibuk. It only mentions the Eskashras. Very simple idea. It's a very beautiful idea. He says, what's, what's the Dibuk? The Dibuk means a hug. The hug, the kiss is in two directions. We're kissing God and God is kissing us. But the hug, only God hugs us. We can't hug Him. Because what does a hug mean? The hugger is enveloping the one that's being hugged. Now God, being the being that God is not enveloping, So the hug is only coming from Hashem to us. The kiss is both, but the hug is only. So there's no chibuk on our end. We sing it in the same zemer, the same song that the Arizal says, that we sing Friday night. Over there, if you might be familiar with the words, beautiful words, Yechabek la bala, her husband hugs her. She is hugged by him. The soul is hugged by by, by Hashem, it's not possible the hug to go in the other direction. So our experience as we're reaching for Hashem is only in a kiss and not in a hug. Then, what is the connection to the Parshas Truma? So the Zohar now concludes and the Zohar says like this, all of this is related to the Pasuk, which Pasuk? Ki Yaakov bachar loika. Yaakov, God has chosen with this little pasuk, the Zohar wants to explain the difficulty that it had in what it's trying to explain in the first pasuk in Parshas Truma. You see, in Parshas Truma, if we look at the verse, in the, in the first verse of Parshas Truma, I mean, second verse, we see, the, we, we wouldn't have noticed it till, till this point, but now after this, all this explanation, we notice that the pasuk seems to be conflicting itself. The first phrase of the pasuk is, you should take for me a truma. Implying that what? That where is inspiration coming from? Where is the energy coming from? We're taking it from God. That means it's coming from above. We only have to be receivers. You have to take me. That means the inspiration is coming from above and we're just taking it, we're receiving it. The second half of the Pasuk is saying, from who should you take it? May ace call ish from every person, Asha Yedvenu Liboy, that his heart will donate or his heart will inspire. Implying that where is the inspiration coming from? Where is the, 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 the love? Where is the connection coming from? For our hearts. So the Zohar is puzzled from where is it coming? Is it coming from above or is it coming from below? In which direction is it? So for that, the Zohar goes and brings the Pasuk. Ki Yaakov bachar loika. That Yaakov bachar, now let's try to translate that passage just word for word. Ki Yaakov, because Yaakov, bachar lo, bachar loi, chose for him ka, Hashem. 
Ki Yaakov bachar loika. Because Yaakov chose for him Hashem. There's two ways of interpreting the Pasuk, depending where you put the comma. What does this Pasuk mean? One way of reading the Pasuk is, Ki, ki Yaakov, because Yaakov, Bachar loika, Hashem chose Yaakov. God chose Yaakov to be his. Ki Yaakov, Bachar loika. Yaakov, Yaakov, the Jewish people, God chose Yaakov. That's, that's one way of reading it. It's God chose us. Another way of reading the Pasuk is, Ki Yaakov, Bachar Yaakov chose for himself. Then you put the comma there, Ka, Hashem. Who's choosing who? You can read the Pasuk, Ki Yaakov, because Yaakov, Jacob, which is the Jewish people, Bachar Ka, God chose Israel, God chose us. Or we can read the Pasuk, Ki Yaakov bachar loy. Yaakov chose. Who did Yaakov chose? Ka Hashem. We chose him. And the answer is both interpretations of the Pasuk are right. They're both correct. Because both, the Zohar just explained, both are true. God chose Israel. We said earlier, Hashem desired us. But as a result of Hashem desiring us and His, and his want to bond and cleave to us, what happens? It's reciprocal. What happens? Ki Yaakov Why does Yaakov choose? Why does every Jew choose? Ka Hashem. We choose God, God chooses us. And that's what the Pasuk is also saying. V'yikhuli, take from me. The inspiration is coming from God to us. He desires us. But as a result of that, because Hashem desires us, there is a desire in every single Jew's neshama to bond and cleave to Hashem. So it's multi-directional. Just like the Pasuk, But what does this, all this say to us? And of course, I, I left out some of it because it's just too much for the, for the hour shear that we have. But, or, but, but here, is, here is the thought as it, as it pertains to joy. You see, when one takes for a moment and thinks just, just one thought, and this is truth, whether we can fathom it or understand it, it doesn't make a difference, but this is the, just the truth. And that is that there are, I looked this up in Google today, I Googled this. There are 7.8 million living species, species of living entities on planet Earth. I'm not talking about creatures. Creatures is billions, billions. We're talking about how many types of creatures and beings there are. 7.8 billion that they, that they estimate. Of course, they, they don't know. But let's say 8, billion, 8, 8 million, 8 million types of species. That's living species in planet Earth. If you're talking about spiritual entities that exist in the higher worlds, and we're dealing with the billions of the billions of the billions, different types of entities and creatures. So to think about as follows like this, from all these possible forms of existence that I could have ended up in, any of us could have ended up being a butterfly, an ant, a mosquito, a squirrel, a rhino. Uh, you could have been, you could have been, and then we could have all been, even if you would be a human being, we could have ended up being a human being amongst a few billion human beings that there are, to have locked out. To become, to be part of the one species, the one being, in where God's 
essence and desires us for no reason at all, with all of his love and all of his desire, this is ridiculous. Now that's already if we're assuming that we had to exist, that we were going to be born into existence. But if we also take into consideration the possibility of us not existing, how many creatures were never created? Once you add that, how many were never created? How many possibilities does an infinite God could have created and he didn't create? That obviously has no number. And there's no end. So from all, first of all, we lucked, we lucked out to be part of existence. God's existence, God's creation. And out of all beings, we were lucked out to be born a Jew. That's it. It doesn't mean anything more than that. You lucked out, you're a Jew. As you're a Jew, you're in the root of root and the heart of desires. And even if there's nothing in your life that you can point to that's good, nothing, everything, it might be miserable. There's a lack of this or a lack of that. But think about that. Think about the idea that, that you are eternal, absolute, forever, because you're in the apple, the innermost of God's heart. And it has nothing because a person says, I'm lousy, I did this and I did that, and I said and I messed up over here and I ruined this and I ruined... But it's all irrelevant because it's not based on any reason. It's all secondary. It's all secondary. As we're planted in the world, we have jobs to do and fine. Some do it better, some do it worse, but that doesn't take away from the essential element. And this is a redeeming thought because what could contradict this thought? In other words, the thought of Ashreinu Matoiv Chalkeinu, how fortunate, how lucky, that God desired us, every single one of us. And that's okay in Hashem's heart of hearts. It is given, it is within our abilities to bring that into expression by doing a mitzvah. You're kvetching, you're crying, this is a problem and that is a problem. It's true, no one is saying that these are not serious problems. But above all of that, the fact that there is a, a bond, there is an unbreakable bond, there's nothing I can do or did that will, that will destroy this bond, and I can manifest the bond right now. At this moment, I'm feeling down, I'm feeling horrible, and I need a hug. I need a hug, but I have a hug. Put a penny in a tzedakah box and you're hugged by God. Learn a word of Torah and now you and Him have merged. Pray and recognize where you're standing when you're saying, Avas Olam Aftanu. Recognize where you're standing when you're saying those 15 Vyatsev How can I? So then that has to melt. That has to melt away. Even a stone heart. That has to melt away all depression and all sadness. That doesn't mean that just you have one time this thought that's going to, oh, oh, you know, you're just going to be the happiest person. It's a constant. It's a constant work. But it's, there is. There is nothing that can be argued to counter this thought as long as a Jew has the faith and the amuna in what it says in the Zohar. And what it says, what Hasidic masters has revealed to us, the depth of the union between Hashem and Knesset Yisrael and the Jewish people. All of this comes into full manifestation of Parshas Truma, where this is the whole idea of the whole Parsha. Building a home for God, making the vessels, making the structure. The structure is the hug, the vessels are the kiss. And this is the union with Hashem. With this, from this thought, this can resurrect, literally bring Tchiyas HaMesim. May we merit that the joy of this idea should actually bring about Tchiyas HaMesim to resurrect a heart. This should, idea, if, if Hashem should only, so we pray, that Hashem should only 
enable us to feel the truth. To because th- whatever I said by the sheer is just is nothing. It's just a little minuscule, minuscule, minuscule. It's so much infinitely more. As much as I try to describe it and, and excited and yelling and screaming about it, it doesn't it doesn't capture it. It's much. It's endlessly more than this. More exciting than than, than anything that has been said. May Hashem help us that that should act. You know, when the, the like a when a, what is it called when a heart. Uh, needs a, needs a boost. Needs a, what is it? What do they call it? A, def, a, a defibrillator? No. Uh, uh, what? Uh, what? A jolt. That should jolt the heart to come from its dead state to being alive with joy. And as our our joys come to life, may Hashem bring about that all those who departed and all those that need the brach of actual tchias amesim should merit. We should see the ultimate tchias amesim, the resurrection of all those who passed away, the coming of Mashiach the ultimate union between Hashem and the Jewish people should be celebrated in all of its glory and all of its light forever and ever. May we merit to see that tonight.